Hey there, and welcome to All About Everest podcast, episode 19 interview with Ella Stewart, and I am your host, Pauline Reynolds-Nettle. During this episode, we have an interview with Ella Stewart, who wrote the amazing book, It's Not About the Summit. He also has another book coming out soon in the next year, also about Mount Everest. And I think one of the best things about Ellis is his very large online Facebook community that brings Everest enthusiasts and climbers together. So let's go. All right, as usual, I have a couple housekeeping issues and a few Everest updates before I get to this week's episode. So I thank all of you that have reached out to me with your messages and emails asking me where the heck I've been for the last two months. And basically I've been here, but I have been so overwhelmed and so busy I don't know when to tell myself no, and so I keep adding projects. And our newest project is that we started an Airbnb. It kind of exploded in a really good way, but I have had to relearn how to manage my time and not neglect that business. It's pretty time-consuming, and I didn't realize that it really would take that much time, but it has. So I think I finally figured out how to juggle everything. And then we haven't had hot water in four months. It's a really long story that you probably don't have time to hear because it takes like an hour or so to talk about it. But it has turned like my evening chores from like one hour to almost four because it takes me three hours to wash dishes. I have to heat up the water every time I do dishes and it takes up a lot of time. So I realized that I have been so overwhelmed in this crazy madness that last weekend I took a me break and I went camping with just my two kids just to kind of refocus and kind of plan what I'm going to be doing moving forward and figuring out how to manage it all in a very good and also very healthy way. Had a wonderful time. It was absolutely what I needed. I got home and I've gotten back to my writing and also this podcast. The other thing is, is that so many people were concerned that I had stopped or quit And it just, it felt so good that people really look forward to this podcast every week, especially my mom. I may have mentioned it before, but my mom has dementia really bad. And it's gotten to the point that when I call her, she doesn't even know that it's me. But she looks forward to this podcast every single week. She doesn't know that I'm the one who hosts it, but she loves it and it's one of the only connections I have left with my mom because of her illness so it just reaffirmed that I want to keep doing this and I have a better game plan going on moving forward plus I might even have hot water this week which will be even better all right 
Uh, we also have a new sponsor for this podcast. We'll get to them really quick and then I'll get to your Everest updates. Besides podcasting about Mount Everest, I am also a huge outdoor enthusiast and blogger. And one of the things that I'm always looking for is new and affordable outdoor gear for all of my many adventures, including hiking, camping, backpacking, fishing, snow sports, and almost anything else that you can think of. And one of the best ways that I have found to get affordable outdoor gear and discover new brands is through the nomadic subscription box it's a monthly subscription box that comes to your door it starts at $29.99 for the monthly box and $149.99 for the quarterly box and it has between three to five items for the monthly box and six items for the quarterly box i have discovered some of the most amazing brands and gear items because of the nomadic box and I've also saved a ton of money it's one of it's kind of my guilty pleasure subscribing every month but just as I was looking at my gear for my last outdoor adventure I realized that most of the stuff in there including a lot of my kitchenware and my smaller items like my hat and my socks, that all of it is from the Nomadic Box. So they have offered us a really cool deal if you use the code EVEREST on their website, which is thenomadic.com, and that's nomadic, N-O-M-A-D-I-K, thenomadic.com, you can get 10% off. I really encourage you to check out this deal, even if you try a one-time box or you even get one of their previous boxes, which they also sell as well. Take advantage of it and try something new today. I'll have the link and the code also in the comments. I don't really have a lot of Everest updates. Uh, partly because I haven't really been in the loop and then the spring season ended the end of May and nothing's really happened for a while up there. One of the biggest updates I guess is that the Nepalese government has suggested moving Everest base camp further down. Um, they think that the glacier is um, becoming extremely unstable or more more unstable than normal. Um, partly because of global warming and also because of so many people being on it all of the time. Um, as we know though, with the Nepalese government, they suggest a lot of things. A lot of it doesn't ever happen or they say it's going to happen and it's not really regulated or implemented. So hopefully they listen to a lot of the people that um, have a vested interest in it like a lot of the locals that um, work Everest Base Camp every year as well as some of the Westerner companies. So anytime I hear an update on that I will let you know. I'm sure most of you have already heard this but last month someone drove a Tesla car all the way to Everest Base Camp on the Tibetan side. 
It wasn't that they drove a car to Everest Base Camp that made a big splash in the news. It was the fact that the Tesla was able to function at such a high altitude. It is easier to get to the um, base camp on the Tibetan side just because it's, it's an actual road. And on the Nepali side, there's a lot of terrain that's hard to navigate. And I don't think a vehicle would ever be able to make it to Everest Base Camp on the Nepali side unless they put in a lot of infrastructure. They would have to completely redo the road system, add some bridges, and I don't think it would ever happen. Besides, it would really be harmful to the integrity of the Nepali side of Everest. So that was a huge achievement and a lot of people thought it was pretty cool. So there's that. So this one isn't really a Everest update, but it is a pretty big deal in the mountaineering world. So in 2019, Nims Day, also known as Dermal Purja, he summited all of the 14 8,000ers in six months and six days. And so this year, Norwegian Kristen Harula, who is 36, is attempting to complete all 14 even quicker than that. But it's not just her because she also has Pasdawa Sherpa with her and Dawa Angchu Sherpa. I hopefully said those names right. So it's actually the three of them, which is funny because when you look at the news and stuff, all of the posts start with her. And she seems to be the one in the limelight right now. But I'm going to make it clear that it's all three of them that are attempting to break this record. And so she only has three peaks left, which are Manaslu, Choyoyu, and Shishapangma, in order to get the fastest time. And it looks like it's pretty good that she's going to break Nims Day's record along with... Um, Dawa and Dawa. So I'm really excited to continue to watch her. And like I said, even though it's not an Everest thing, it's a pretty big deal in the mountaineering community. So I thought I would share that. All right, on for the rest of this episode, episode 19 interview with Ellis Stewart. So Ellis and I recorded this interview the end of May and then everything just kind of went to shit. So I haven't posted it. But Ellis Stewart is the author of Everest. It's not about the summit and misadventure lessons learned from a life of ups and downs. So most of you have probably heard of or have even read Ellis's first book, Everest. It's not about the summit. And our interview is a lot like that. It's very heartfelt, honest, candid, and even funny at times. And I have to say that his book is really one of my favorites. I've reread it probably twice, and I've even gifted it a couple of times. I absolutely loved it, and I'm looking forward to his new book that he has coming out in the next year. And I'll just let you listen to the interview so he can tell you more about it. So here we go. All right. Hey, Ellis, thank you for joining us for the All About Everest podcast. We're really excited to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Colleen. I'm really uh, super excited to be here myself, to be honest. 
So Ellis Stewart has two books out. One of the biggest ones is It's Not About the Summit. And his Everest story is very unique. So <clears throat> Ellis, when, when did you decide that you wanted to climb Mount Everest? Oh, crikey. I was probably about 15 year old, if I'm honest. <laughs> it went back as far as that. Um, it's, it's one of those things, because whenever anybody asks me that question, you know, how long have you wanted to climb Everest or how long does it take to climb Everest? I always think Everest is a, it's not, I don't think it's an adventure or it's an endeavor that you suddenly wake up one morning and say, hey, that looks like good fun. I'm going to go and have an attempt to climb, you know, the highest mountain in the world. I think it's something that's in, instilled in you from, a, from a, over a long period of time from a young age. So for me personally, I remember reading all about the mountain in my teens, you know, from being 15, 16, uh, through to my early 20s. And it was only really when I, I guess I got into my early 20s that I really started giving it some serious uh, thought and, and started putting the wheels in motion for this, for this crazy plan of, of going out to Everest and trying to climb the mountain. So for me, it's a long, long period of my life, as, as you'll know if, if, you, if you read the book. It, it was a 20-year goal um, when I finally got out to the mountain. But the, the seeds and that spark to go out to Everest were there from, yeah, a long, long time ago. Uh, when I was a, a, a young bairn, as it was, you know, mid-teens, I guess. Hold on one second. You're not supposed to be in here. <laughs> oh, you got me a rock. Thank you. Oh, those are beautiful. Can you do me a favor? <laughs> You're supposed to be up at the house. Can you run up to the house and get ready to go to Aunt Elizabeth? Ask, you know what? Carly has a new dinosaur movie on her phone, brand new, that just came out. Go ask Aunt Carly to put on the dinosaur movie for you. Okay, okay I love you. Goodbye. Okay, oh, thank you. Another, oh, it's not a rock. Okay, hi. Okay, shut the door. Thank you. <laughs> I am hey, so sorry about that. Leave that in. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so, when, what year did you decide that you were going to go for it and start uh, getting the money for Mount Everest? Because it's extremely expensive. Yeah. I think the average is about $60,000. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, for me personally, I think I can go back as far as the year 2000. Uh, so the very first time I actually trekked to Everest, which I, I pretty much did on a, on, a, on a whim and on a shoestring budget, I just decided that, you know, hey, if I'm ever going to achieve this goal of climbing the mountain, you know, going to see the mountain in the first place is probably pretty important. So it was from being from about 2000, from being out there and actually standing at the, the foot of the icefall. That was the, the light bulb moment for me. And that was the moment where I thought I am going to come back and climb this. So I'm going to put everything I have into this. Uh, however long that takes, whether it's a year, two years, three years, whatever it takes to get the experience together. Um, but I know at some point in the future, I am going to come back and, and, and have an attempt on this mountain. So, yeah, the year 2000 was, was pretty pivotal for me. So your whole journey, how you raised money to summit Mount Everest the first time is pretty unique. <laughs> um, and oh, one of the questions that I've noticed is that people want to know, well, how do I raise the money? How do I get this huge chunk yeah. of cash? And sure. you did it in a very unique way. So how did you do that, Ellis? Yeah, I did. I mean, it's one of those things because I reckon during the Everest climbing season, or certainly in the run-up to the expeditions, I probably receive around about five messages a week 
from people climbers want people want to go out to climb the mountain uh wanting advice on raising money to go and you know get your place on a team and, and the one thing i say is you've got to do you you know everybody's unique um, what worked for me won't necessarily work for somebody else i mean i can't just say to somebody hey all you need to do is uh come up with a few quirky t-shirt designs you know slap everest on the front of it and sell it and and there you go you're on your way to the mountain because chances are that's not going to work for, for you but pretty much that's what i did um if i'm going back to 2014 my first attempt on everest um i started at the time i had a an everest facebook page called everest dream which as you now know um, and it, it was just a little community that my family and friends were connected into. But the more I started mentioning about Everest on, on Facebook and the more I started, you know, being proactive and positive about it and, and putting out there that, yeah, hey, this is something that I'm going to do. I'm going to go and climb this mountain. The more people started to sort of like the, the page, the more people started to become invested into that. And it was through that. It was through that community that kind of started growing in 2012, 2013 that I then started tinkering about with these, these t-shirt designs, you know, essentially that's what I did, but I was targeting it out to this, this Facebook community that was growing and it just started working. It just, I've got no explanation as to why that did happen, but it did. And, and as the community on Facebook and social media started to intensify and grow, um, as did the sales and I knew I was onto something and I, I really just went for it I just you know added more products into I created a, a unique website um, you know I put a lot of products in there I came up with a very quirky uh, tagline to my first attempt on Everest which I think was something like one dream one chance one life um, I, I was like selling that. yeah I was selling that on on clothing on you know, uh, T-shirts with Everest on them and hoodies and uh, you name it. And it was working for me. Um, you know, I was being very, very proactive with how I was getting the message out there. I was doing a lot of uh, social media advertising, a lot of Facebook advertising. And I just went for it. I just didn't hold back. And, and the more that I went for it and the more that, you know, I invested into the social media side of things, the more things started to happen for me. Um, so when everybody, when anybody comes up to me and says, did you really you know, raise your expedition fees by selling t-shirts? I'm like, I did, yeah, I'm not lying. That really is how I did it uh, in 2014. So I, I guess it is quite unique. And I, I, you know, I can't honestly say to somebody, hey, if you do what I did, you'll raise the expedition fees, no problems whatsoever. But it was the right place, right time for me um, in 2013 and 14. And it worked, and I was able to sort of cash in on it uh, big time. So um, you attempted to summit Mount Everest twice, once in 2014 and once in 2015. And I think people who are yeah. familiar with, with Mount Everest kind of know what happened. But yeah. talk to me about what happened in 2014. <clears throat> yeah, okay. I mean, obviously, you'll have spoke to different people, and, and they can give you their version of events and, and where they were in, in Nepal or where they were on the mountain when, when, you know, when that disaster happened. I think in 2014, I was actually, I'd just come over a, over a pass and I'd just reached Lobeshire. So we just got to the village of Lobeshire, uh, which I obviously I wrote about in, in the book. Um, and one of our porters was kind of on the other side of the dining room, and he was looking quite shifty. He was looking a bit unsettled. And we knew something was up. Um, you could tell that you know there was some tension in the air and something wasn't right. So he came over to us to just inform us that there'd been 
um, effectively an avalanche above base camp was all that was being told at the time. We didn't know where this was. I think it was actually incorrectly reported as being camp one initially. They said at camp one there'd been an avalanche, a few of the tents had been destroyed and several Sherpas had been killed. So that was the first we got wind of that. Um, and obviously it, it kind of changed everything immediately. Uh, so Tim, our expedition guide at the time, went and connected to the... I mean, ironically, I was getting messages of people back home who knew about this before we did, uh, which was, was a crazy situation to think that that was what happened. I think Alan Arnett was, was talking about it from his home and, you know, thousands of miles away, he knew what was going on before we did. Yeah, so we we, we connected to the internet in a lodge in, in, in Lobbershire and then started hearing more information about what had actually happened and and what, what was unfolding with that catastrophe and how, you know, that incident was actually not at Camp One. It was in the icefall and it was a larger loss of life than we'd initially anticipated. And it was just a, yeah, it was just a wow moment. It was just a complete and utter we were all speechless and just in, in complete shock as, as to what had just happened because you, you know, you sign up to an Everest expedition and you know, the mountain, you know, technically it's not the most difficult mountain out there, but you know, it, it's a dangerous mountain and it does have that propensity to, to, to sometimes fight back and then, and, you know, and, and kick you in the teeth as it was. And this was one of those occasions where, you know, 16 Nepalis unfortunately were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and yeah, lost their lives. And, and then that changed everything. It changed the whole landscape for 2014. Uh, we still went up to base camp. Um, we still managed to get up to base camp and, and just hunkered down and, and, and held tight to find out what was actually going to happen. Uh, so for, I think it was about seven days of waiting we had while we were wondering. All the Sherpas and all the support staff had gone back down the valley to be with their families. Um, and and all, a lot of the climbers just hung around and waited. And I think it was around about the fifth or the sixth day when things started, you know, to become a lot quieter, where teams started to leave the mountain and pack up. And I think it's at that, that point where we realised, hey, this is it's not going to happen this year. Um, and then for various other reasons, such as the the Sherpa strikes and, and the political, uh, the 13 point list that was was sent into the government. It just, yeah, everything just systematically uh, closed down and, and kind of that was the end of it before it began. And then you decided to go back the following year in 2015. Yeah. And where were you where were you when everything happened in 2015 when the avalanche avalanche hit base camp? Yeah, right. Okay. Um, I mean the first thing I'll say in, in 2015, it was it was hard for me to actually summon up the uh, I suppose the approval from everybody to go back. Because it took me a few months of being home after 2014 to to decide if this mountain was still a big part of my life and if I, I still wanted to go back out there in light of what had just happened. I mean, at the time, I had a young family. I had two young daughters. So, I mean, to, I had to tread very, very carefully to be able to go back in 2015. Once the air had been cleared and I'd been given all the green lights to do that, um, I was adamant that it was going to be a great year. I, I just genuinely felt that 2015... Uh, was going to finally be the year I would step uh, foot on top of the mountain. The icefall, uh, where the previous incident had happened the previous year, the route, as I think I've picked up on from one of your podcasts that you'd already mentioned, had been moved over to the middle. So it was away from that danger area of the, the west shoulder of Everest and, you know, the Seracs coming down from the top. So everything was good. You know, we'd had a few forays into the icefall. Uh, it was in great condition. There was a lot of ladders, but, you know, generally there are, there, there is in the icefall. Um, but the route was in good condition. Um, great 
vibe around base camp. Everybody felt positive. And we all thought, you know, this is going to be a great year on the mountain. And then on the, the day of the actual earthquake, I was actually in the ice fall itself, Pauline. So I was up at, uh, yeah, just underneath the, the final ladder, as it was, um, before we got up to the, the lip of the Western Coombe and into, into Camp 1. So fortuitously, I just scaled that last ladder, as it was, and got onto the top of uh, one of the Seracs when, when it happened, really. So we were not in Camp 1. We were still a good 20 minutes out of Camp 1. Uh, when when obviously the earthquake struck and so what did you feel the avalanche or the earthquake or both being uh, so got, close to the ice fall yeah we got a bit of both if i'm honest um initially it was the it was the ground moving i mean which i mean we were very conscious of where we were because you're conscious that you're in the ice fall and you're conscious that 12 months previously at a roughly similar time of year you know, 16 people lost their lives in a similar spot to where you are. Uh, so when the ground started moving again, I, I think instinctively, must Tim more than me, just assume because I was with Tim. Um, I was with Tim Moresdale, the actual the guide at the time. And I think he just instinctively thought there was something coming down from above us, um, off the West Ridge, off the, sorry, off the West Shoulder. But then that didn't happen. And then this, this rumbling just it continued. And it was quite unusual that, you know, the ground kept moving, but there was nothing really much happening. Um, and then when that stopped, which it did, it just, it just completely and utterly stopped. And then there was a, probably about a 10, 20 second period of utter silence. And then we heard this, you know, freight train sound of an avalanche picking up momentum. Um, I mean, because it was such a weather-wise, it was such a bad day on the 25th of April. It was pretty much a whiteout anyway, so visibility was, was next to nothing. It was down to a couple of metres. Um, so you really had no frame of reference as to what was happening, where, th where this noise was coming from. So you were really just a sitting duck, and as the noise got louder and louder, um, you just assumed that there was something about to come down on top of you. Um, and that's pretty much what happened. We got hit with, a, I think it was a powder avalanche, more than a, you know, anything more dangerous than that but it was still quite frightening you know you're in the ice fall and the, the ground's been moving and all of a sudden um an avalanche comes with it at, at the front of an avalanche you have this uh, almighty force of wind and air that, that precedes the actual snow so we were flattened by that that pushed us down onto all fours and then we were just hit with this you know barrage of powder snow as it was for about 30 seconds um but we were able to once that dissipated out luckily uh, we were able to to stand up, uh, brush ourselves down. We were both completely covered in snow, but grateful to be alive, not knowing what was happening. We didn't know that there'd been an earthquake um, until we were able to meet up with fellow climbers up at Camp One. So it was a frightening experience, one that we weren't sure what just happened. Um, I mean, Tim had been to the summit of Everest uh, three or four times at this point. And I think he admitted himself, it's the closest he's come in to, uh, to check it out in the mountains. So it was a really, you know, uh, on the edge experience that's for sure and um how long was it before you guys found out what had happened because you were in the ice fall and i know there were climbers at camp one so what was that time frame in between that yeah probably about 20 minutes i would say from being hit by the the ground moving in the the, the small avalanche to then meeting with fellow climbers it was just a, a palpable sense of relief when we met up with fellow teammates because we didn't know they, as far as we were concerned, they could have been in the, took the brunt of the, the worst of the avalanche. So we weren't sure what we were going up to. 
we just knew that we had to continue going up because we assumed that below us was probably not in a good place anyway. I mean, we didn't want to go back into the icefall, uh, if I'm honest, after what just happened. Mm. So the respite of Camp 1 was, we knew it wasn't too far away. So yeah, I think about 20 minutes out, uh, several team members and, and one of our team, G, our team GP, Rob Cassily, had actually left Camp 1 sort of selfishly and, and had come back down to look for us because they knew that there was climbers still in the icefall. So it was kind of between Camp 1 and the, the top of the icefall where we met up with, as I say, some of our fellow team members who informed us of, that it was an earthquake. They, they were the first to, to, to mention the words earthquake. And we were just completely and utterly shocked because... You know, with the previous year, what had happened, coming back to Everest in 2015, I think an earthquake was the last thing that I thought would derail my, my plans to get to the top of the mountain. So we were all pretty shocked and, and shook up. And yeah, so it was yeah about 20 minutes after the initial quake, then we found out what it had been. We were able to then radio down to base camp, um, speak to everybody who was down at base camp. And that's when obviously the, the, the terrible news uh, reached us about what had just happened beneath our boots as well, which was far worse than what had happened to us up at Camp One, I must be honest. And how long were you st stuck at Camp One for? Um, we had, I think we, I was there for about two nights. So it was a, a long, you know, it was a long two days, that's for sure, because Camp One is, is not a great camp. It's, it's a staging post in many respects. Once a climber's pretty acclimatized and is ready to move further up the mountain you don't really stay in camp one because of because of its proximity and it's and where it actually is so it's susceptible to to avalanches from the left and also from nupsi on the right so it's somewhere where you don't really want to linger around too much but yeah so knowing that and knowing that we were stuck there for two nights just every hour that went by was just so you know long and just fraught with horrible feelings and I think in the book I actually called the second night there the, the longest night because it really was we'd been told there was a chance that we may get down in helicopters this would have been on the the Monday or the Sunday I can't remember now which day it was exactly I think it might be in the Monday because I think on the actual Sunday there was an, another large there was a large aftershock which shook the entire mountain again so we all immediately shot out of the tents and assumed the worst once more um, but I think it was the following morning when we finally got down from there. So it was two very, very long nights of, of being up on the mountain and enduring several more aftershocks and just thinking, you know, is this the one that's going to take us out now? And, you know, and not being able to get word back home as well was, was quite difficult. And um, what was what were you feeling once you got off of the mountain and then you were on your way home? What were some of the thoughts that were running through your head? Yeah, uh, a sense of obviously immense relief that for the second year running, I'd escaped and I'd avoided these, you know, these disasters on the mountain when so many people, unfortunately, had not been so lucky. Um, you know, in 2014, as you know, there was 16 Nepalis. Uh, 2015, there was now another, as we didn't know at the time, but, you know, another 19 people had just lost their lives pretty much in the same vicinity where, you know, I was and, and some of my teammates. So, yeah, an amazing sense of luck and relief that you've managed to get home when, as I said, others have not been so lucky. But also, I guess there was also just anger, just a feeling of, you know, in a sense of anger and just, you know, being denied what you were there to do. And, you know, why did this happen to me? So, I mean, I always... I always like to say that, you know, I, I don't know whether I was the, the luckiest person because I got home or the unluckiest because of what happened. It's just, it's one of them. I can't really make my mind up really as to, you know, where I fit into that. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I was quite bitter. Um, there was a lot of feelings running through my mind, you know, a lot of feelings of guilt as well, because I'd, you know, I didn't thought I'd told my wife and my family and friends that, you know, this is going to be fine. You know, hundreds of people climb this mountain every year and nothing's going to happen. You know, I said that in 2014 and then look what happened. And then I got everybody on board again and convinced everybody I'd be fine when I went back in 2015. And it was an even worse year, you know, so I had these two back-to-back disastrous seasons on Everest and that brought a lot of emotions that brought a lot of feelings and there was a lot swirling through the mind and it you know and it took me a long time to process those thoughts and to you know to be at peace with what happened I guess because as I said there was a lot of bitterness and a lot of of anger that I didn't really get a chance to to cash in on this dream I guess Uh, certainly for a few years after coming down off the mountain. So when did you decide to write your book? (laughs) I well (laughs) <laughs> the one thing I will say, Pauline, I didn't, I didn't set out to write the book at all. Um, I, you know, I, I, I always describe myself as an accidental author in that it's not something I've, you know, it wasn't a career path. You know, I've not said to anybody, I'm going to be an author, I'm going to write books. Um, and I, I had no intentions to write the book. It was only, I think it was the summer of 2015. So I'd been home for a few months. I'd been mulling around, not really too sure what to do with myself. And I think it was just somebody... Uh, an old friend from university said you should write about this this is a really good story and uh, my initial reaction was well well who wants to read about you know a team or somebody not climbing Everest you know where's the story in that and it was then explained but no that's not what this is about you know this is about the adversity of not climbing Everest this is about when it goes wrong on the mountain you know how many people write about that um and I think that's actually a, it's a good point because I think, you know, as people, we, we tend to like reading about adversity. We like reading these underdog stories and, and you know, and it's not always about the, the, you know, the crowning glory of, of achieving the dream and, and, you know, standing on the summit of a mountain with clear blue skies behind you. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And sometimes, as I've said, you know, the mountain roars up and, and, and it takes victims and it takes lives. And, and that's a story to be told. And I think having, came through those two years I just started putting the wheels in motion and started brainstorming and wondering if I could write about this and yeah it was probably in the summer September August September of 2015 I wrote an introduction I sent an introduction out to people to get feedback on it and it was unanimous you know everybody came back and said this is going to be a great story you need to write about it so that's what I did and then yeah I spent most of 2016 writing it's not about the summit um, and got it got it out there at the end of the year, I think it was about November time, um, and waited patiently to see what the fallout would be to it. And I think that that's why people love this book so much, because it's not, you know, you didn't reach the summit, but yet you had this whole adventure, and it spans several years, like your story before you um, first attempted attempted Mount Everest, your life, all of the stuff that you were going through at the time, your second attempt. And it is really inspiring, Um, especially when you talk about how like, and you really go into this, and I believe you go into this in your book, Misadventures, of just trying one thing that's not working, trying another thing that's not working. But yet Mm. somehow you keep moving forward with the with these adventures and these huge moments like you know publishing a book you know so yeah it's truly inspiring oh thank you paul um i think that's what that's the feedback that i do tend to get from from anybody who reads the everest book a lot of the the nice comments i get is that 
you know it's it yeah that it's nice because it's not just the Everest story it's the whole thing it's you know it, it, there's a lot of takeaways from that entire journey of, of not say taking no for an answer I guess you know when the funding's dried up and you and it looks like you're not going to get there and it's just to keep going and just to keep persevering with that I mean I will honestly say, I, mean, I put my hands on the table and I say for me and for a lot of people, the most difficult part of climbing Everest these days in the 21st century is raising the funds in the first place. Um, it's pretty much job done if, if, you, you know, if you're of the right mindset and you've got great fitness and mentality and, and looks on your side, there's a good chance you're going to reach the top of the mountain. But there's not a good chance you'll raise the money from the outset. So it's, yeah. And I was quite candid with It's Not About the Summit. I was quite keen to talk about that. You know, it's kind of that whole, I guess, that iceberg analogy of, you know, most people only see what's above the ocean, the, the top of an iceberg, but it's it's everything that's beneath that makes up the iceberg. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to talk about, you know, what it takes to get to Everest. Because we only tend to read about people who were there. They don't really go into too much detail about how they got there or who they were in their earlier life and, and what drove them and, you know, and what possessed them to, to take on a, a challenge as gigantic as this. So I wanted to talk about all of that and I wanted to make it, I wanted to humanize it and make it, you know, so anybody who could read that book could, could seriously think, Hey, I could do this. If this guy's been able to do this, this is something I can do. And that, to be honest, Pauline, is the feedback that I do get. You know, there's a hell of a lot of people, sorry, a heck of a lot of people that have gone out to Everest, just purely to base camp um, because they've read my book. And that, that's really nice for me. It's very humbling. And, you know, they, they send me pictures of themselves stood at base camp with a copy of my book. And it's really nice. You know, and the takeaway from my Everest experiences, that's my, my legacy. That's my everlasting gift as it is. You know, I didn't get to the top of the mountain personally, but my experiences and being willing to talk about it the way I had seems to have helped people and it seems as you said there it, it just seems to inspire people and it and it's an accidental inspiring thing you wrote another book yeah say that again sorry oh went out. yeah you're like right at the end there um yeah. and it is it is very inspiring um yeah. your whole story and a lot of people say you know ellis stewart inspired me to go to everest base camp and he's shown me oh. that anybody can raise those funds it just takes a lot of hard work and yeah. i think in your situation was kind of cobbling things together along the way there was no sure. path. yeah absolutely <laughs> um and you wrote another book that came out last year misadventures tell us yeah. a little bit about that one yeah this was a book that came out in uh, in lockdown i guess you know, as we all you know we all found ourselves with time on our hands during lockdown and because because of the Everest book and because of the you know the, the success that the Everest book had had um I had give a lot of thought to, to to writing another book but I I would just dismiss it because I didn't think I had anything to write about because I hadn't gone back to Everest there hadn't been a second like a third attempt on Everest as it was so there was nothing to write about from that point of view so I I wrongly dismissed sort of large sections of my life since Everest and also large sections of my life before Everest, assuming that it wouldn't be interesting for the reader and that I didn't really have anything to write about. But again, I began the process. I sat down, I brainstormed some aspects of my life. There was a lot of stuff that was left out of the Everest book that I wrote. I think initially the Everest book was around about 150,000 words and that was chopped down to about 100,000. So I'd wrote about a lot that wasn't really pertinent to the Everest story. So I kept it all out because it wasn't relevant. But then in the, this, 
what with the, the idea for the new book, I thought, well, actually, can, I can weave this into that book because that would probably be very relevant to this aspect of my life. And this whole misadventure, um, you know, lessons learned from this this life of ups and downs. We all have these ups and downs in life. You know, we don't. Life isn't all plain sailing. You know, and it's not always, as I said earlier, about you know the achievement of dreams and you know, and successful lives. Life sometimes kicks you when you're down, and life can sometimes be hard. And that's what I wanted to write about. I wanted to talk about, you know, the aspects of my life since coming back from Everest, what I've been up to, uh, what what's happened to me personally. Um, and again, and you know, if you've read the, the Everest book, and anybody who's read that knows I'm very candid, and I, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve when I, I I write my these these books. So I knew I was going to be, I wasn't going to pull any punches. Now I knew I was going to be very honest. It was going to be another extremely honest portrayal of my life since Everest, uh, how it affected me. You know, the few years of coming down from the, the mountain and those disasters and what I went through, you know, some personal battles that I went through. I mean, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that I went through some into some very dark places. Um, I had some very, you know, some some sort of battles with my own mental health. And, and I wrote about it because I wanted it to be something that, again, people might get some help from if they read that, you know, we are normal. Everybody goes through these feelings in life. And that's why I did it. I wanted it to be, you know. An honest account of that, of those sort of battles, but in a light-hearted, feel-good manner. Because if anybody asks me, is what is the book? Is it a sad book? Is it? I said no, it's a feel-good book, and I really think it is. I think that the ultimate core message through that is, you know, is you can do anything in life and just keep going, just keep moving forward, and be resilient. And that's the message. So it's a second autobiography about my life uh, prior to Everest and and after. <laughs> And that that it is a feel good book. Okay, thank I mean, you. You you yeah. put it perfectly. Um, so you you talked in the beginning about your Facebook group, and it has grown. You have over how many members now? I think it's over twenty thousand. Uh, yeah, I think there's oh, it's over, I think it's about twenty six, twenty six thousand, something like that. Yeah, it, it does grow. The the actual. What I started a when I went to Everest myself, I had a page, um, and a couple of years ago, I, I started a group that was to go along with that page because I wanted to then remove the onus from being on me. It wasn't about me and, and my dream anymore, but I knew that there's a big community of obviously there's thousands of people out there who share the same dream, who have the same passion. So I wanted it to just be somewhere on Facebook to to pool that and to bring everybody together and to give everybody else who had this dream like I did like an outlet and a platform to discuss it so I figured the group would be the, the perfect you know the perfect outlet for that and I started it again and it just naturally started growing uh, more people started joining it's it very soon eclipsed the page and it's been a great thing to watch to watch happen and I know it's become a very you know like you said it's it's a useful resource for all things Everest um, and what's happening on the mountain and I'm you know I'm quite happy to still be associated with the whole Everest dream thing it's kept that going you know from my point of view because that was my whole the name of my uh, my ambitions to climb Everest and it's nice that it's still there on Facebook and that you know thousands of people are all around the world have joined into that and it, it grows every week it gets bigger and bigger and you know it gets harder and harder to police and to, to, to admin that but yeah, it's nice. It's nice that I'm, I like to think it's giving back now. You know, I've had my adventures on the mountain and I want other people to be able to experience that and have theirs and, and, and go somewhere where they can get advice, you know, speak to climbers, speak to people on Everest and follow along with 
expeditions that are happening in, in real life time. So yeah, so it's amazing from that point of view. It is a fabulous group and people make so many connections. Um, there's a lot of information that you can get from the group about Mount Everest, yeah. anywhere from what books to read, uh, what you need to do to get in shape and what's going on on the mountain. You yeah. have another book coming out next year. I do. Um, um, yes, this is a book, it, to be honest with you, this is the book that I wish I had wrote when I wrote It's Not About the Summit. Because It's Not About the Summit was, wasn't, all, it wasn't just about Everest, it was about my life. Um, you know, I think if there's any criticism with that book especially, it's that it takes a while to get going because a lot of the book doesn't really get into Everest until the middle, you know, towards the end of it. Um, and yeah, so I knew deep down inside that I'd always had this idea of writing a book just purely about Everest with my connection to the mountain, but not purely from my story of what happened to me because I've wrote about that. But, and I wanted to do a book about you know, the positive good side of Everest um, because far too many books are written these days that that play on the dark side of the mountain. You know, they play on the commercialization. They talk about the mountain being a rubbish tip. It's it's easy. You know, anybody can do it. And that's as you know, that's not the case. You know, anybody who, you know, puts the boots on and gets out of the house and goes and attempts this mountain deserves a lot of respect and a lot of kudos. And I wanted to readdress that balance. And I wanted to produce a book that talks about that whole the nice parts of the mountain, the feel-good aspect of the mountain. What is the fascination with Everest? You know, what propels people to still, you know, all these years after it was the very first attempt. I mean, we're coming up to 100 years since the very first, the 1924 British attempt. That's 100 years of endeavour uh, on the world's highest mountain. And I just, I just want to put a book out there that just, you know, highlights the, the positivity of the mountain, how it helps the Sherpa people, um, you know, everybody who goes is spiritually moved. Everybody who goes does so for their own. And they're never the same person, you know. So I'm conducting and carrying out a lot of interviews with a lot of high profile mountaineers who've been on Everest. And that's going to be, you know, a, a huge part of this book, talking about a lot of climbers, you know, personal feelings about summiting this mountain and what it meant to them. You know, so it's going to be full, full positivity uh, and a real feel good book about the mountain rather than it being a, you know, doom and gloom, you know, this mountain sucks type thing, because the press reports that all the time. And this mountain deserves a lot more respect than it gets. So yeah, so this is what, and the book is gonna be called The Everest Dream. Um, you know, it's a fascination with the world's highest mountain. So yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of writing that now with a view to releasing that in the summer of 2023. And again, it's the feel good, right? Yeah. You keep coming back to that. and. You're right. There's a lot of negativity when it comes to the mountain and the doom and the gloom and people do forget. I haven't even realized it until you said it that, yeah, most of the other books that they're all doom and gloom. Yeah, like, they are. you know, about yeah. the horrible things that have happened up there, which, <laughs> you know, it is part of mountain life. It's part of that mountaineering lifestyle that there is going to be accidents. There is going to be tragedy and death. But you always seem to have this very positive outlook, no matter what's happening up there on the mountain. And I know that um, people in your group, we all appreciate that too. Yeah. So 
yeah, that's my that's the ethos. That's what I want to put out there. The Everest Dream Group. It, it, I want yeah, it's a group of positivity. It's a group where people, you know, I don't want people to come in and, and bemoan the mountain and, and have a whinge. And it's for people to talk about what it means to them. And you know, these people going out not necessarily to climb the mountain, but just to trek. It gives them an opportunity to talk about what that means to them. And, and you can see what it means to people, you know, going out to Nepal for the first time and, and experiencing not just Everest, but everything about the place, you know, Kathmandu, the, the Kumbu, the, you know, the tea houses, the, the local hospitality, the Tibetan Buddhism, everything. It's just all part and parcel of what is a beautiful experience. And I, and I do believe that anybody who goes out to this mountain um, gets a lot out of it. And that and we do deserve to, to shout about that and celebrate it rather than be down and, you know, down and out about it because that's been done to death we need to now turn the tides on this a bit and I, and that's my aim with this book is just to put a really nice book about what it actually does mean to people who do go to attempt this mountain obviously myself included in that and are you planning eventually to go back yeah absolutely um i'm looking to go back possibly this autumn there's a chance that i could be out there this autumn in a trekking capacity uh, going over the uh, the three high passes uh, all the way up to base camp in in October time. It was a trip that we were looking to do uh, in the, the the lockdown year of 2020. We then delayed it to 21, and then it didn't happen. I've not been able to sort of do it this year for personal reasons. I've been quite busy with other stuff. Um, but there are there's a lot of people who I connected with a few years ago who wanted to come out and do this with me. Who again had read it's not about the summit. Um, you know, because of that, they wanted to come and see Everest with me, and that's it's a real nice honor for me. Um, so I'm looking at revitalizing that possibly this autumn so i'm speaking to several individuals to see if they can make it happen again for this october so i could be back out in nepal for two to three weeks um in october um, doing as i say the three high passes and going back to base camp for the first time since uh <laughs> the earthquake in 2015 so i'm really excited about that because it'll be quite relaxing for me to be there knowing i'm not there you know, to climb the mountain, but I'm there to just to enjoy being back amongst Nepal's hills and amongst the people and with, you know, with like-minded people who want to just, you know, soak up the Everest experience. And um, what else are you doing besides writing your book? What are you doing in general? Yeah, at the moment, I'm kind of, uh, I've always worked for myself, so I'm kind of, Job-wise, I, I do a lot of graphical design, but I'm a creative designer, so I, I've gone more into the marketing side of things. So I'm a freelance marketer in many respects. I, you know, I work with a lot of sports brands on their marketing campaigns. Um, I come up with sort of, uh, again, based on the whole me coming up with the concept of the whole Everest Dream website and how I was able to market that and and you know turn a clothing brand into a successful venture that allowed me to go to Everest. So I now do that with other companies where I work with them on various campaigns and, and look as to see, you know, what they can do. And I'm quite enjoying it. So, you know, I, there's a lot of time on my MacBook. There's a lot of time sat staring at a screen at the moment. It's not enough time getting out in the hills, but it's keeping me connected with, you know, the mountains and the outdoors. And a lot of these brands I'm working with are kind of outdoorsy in a way. So that's nice. It's nice that I'm, yeah, I'm still able to do that. So my major, when I was at university, I did e-commerce. So I'm kind of still involved in that to a degree. So I can sit and do some marketing work for a, for a company. Then I might take myself off for a few hours and write some of the book. And I just, you know, fill my time to pretty much doing that. But from a hobby point of view, I've got much more into uh, open water sea swimming now. <laughs> I'm fortunate enough that I live on a beach. So I'm um, 
throughout the winter, I was pretty much taking myself into the sea most mornings and having a swim. And it's been invigorating and I've absolutely loved every minute of it because I'm not near any mountains as such. But, you know, I've been getting another getting a buzz from from this open water sea swimming. So I'm, I'm keeping myself quite active and keeping in shape and yeah, just keeping involved with everything. You know, I speak to Alan quite a bit through the Everest Dream page. And yeah, I'd like to just, I keep involved with Everest. It's, you know, as I said at the beginning of the interview, it's, it's certainly never say never uh, when it comes to that mountain. And, you know, again, you, your group has um, really, it's a huge community that everybody extremely appreciates. And I appreciate, I've made some awesome connections through your group. Um, where besides your group Everest Stream on Facebook, where else can we find you? Okay, there is actually. I mean, you can connect with me personally. I'm on Instagram. If you just search for my name, LSJ Stewart, um, you know, I'm quite happy to connect with people on Instagram. There is actually an Everest Stream uh, Instagram page as well, I believe, uh, as there is on Twitter. Um, and I've also I'm personally on Twitter myself as well. So if anybody wants to actually go to the website, it's Everest-Dream.com. Uh, that talks about the 2014 and 2015. It talks about the, the books that are on there. It talks about the plans for the trek. And there's also still a whole range of Everest Dream merchandise and products on there that, you know, people buy when they're going off to the to base camp. So that's out there as well. Um, but yeah, I am quite social. But if anybody does want to chat to me, the best place to connect with me would certainly be through Facebook or, or Instagram, I would say. All right. Hey, thank you so much, Ellis. And we look forward to your new book next year. Yeah, not a problem at all, Pauline. I'll be sure to send you a copy when, I, when it's out. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I am so glad to be back. And it feels so good, even though I feel like there were some rocky points in there because I'm not used to doing this and haven't done it for over two months. As usual, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, and rate. The more comments and likes and subscriptions I have, it bumps it higher to the top. Next week's episode, I'm not really sure what it's going to be yet. I've put out some feelers for interviews, but apparently everyone is busy with other climbing adventures or here in the U.S., a lot of people are just outside camping and backpacking. So hopefully I have someone for next week. If you're interested in interviewing and you've summited Mount Everest or you're an enthusiast like me, shoot me a message and we can schedule that. Um, if any of you have any ideas of what you'd like to hear on the podcast, again, email me or send me a message. Alrighty then, see you next week.